Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Adam, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to talk to you today, um, especially as it relates to the world of private equity, because I know that's what world you live in. So welcome to the show, and um, I'm excited to start asking you some questions. Well, great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, hello to all your listeners out there. Uh, excited. Let's do this. Let's do this. So, let's talk about your background and and specifically, you know, I, I want to say thank you, number one, for your service in the the military. But I want to hear more from your side. Like, let's hear about your experience in the military and how did that experience mold you into the person who you are today. Well, sure. You know, life is a journey, and we build, you know, our story based on the experiences that, that we had, you know, as a young kid coming out of high school, knew I wasn't ready to just go straight to college. It was during the Ronald Reagan era, you know, feel good America's back kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I went in the service right out of high school uh, in the military. I tell people today, if it wasn't for the military, uh, I'm not a successful CEO today. Uh, kind of the tagline that they used in marketing back then was the army, a great place to start. And for me, that's what it was. So leadership, discipline, teamwork, kind of the foundational elements of, uh, of my career. Uh, and those skill sets certainly pay dividends to this day. So learn how to work with a diverse group of people to accomplish, you know, sometimes very difficult missions. And, you know, you put, you put all that together, you know, great, great learnings for a, a later business career. Uh, and, and for me, it also led me to kind of my second, you know, world, which was as an engineer, uh, and engineering made me a meticulous planner, but you know, definitely I owe the military kind of slapping this young kid around and, and putting him on a, on a path towards doing something meaningful and the three key elements, you know, leadership, discipline, teamwork. So when you were in high school and it's coming to an end, were you thinking, okay, I don't, I don't know what I want to do next. So I guess I'll just go into the military or did you have something in your mind where you're like, okay, I may not necessarily know what my next steps are, but generally I like maybe engineering. Maybe I like this. Maybe I could go here. Or were you just like, well, just floating around in life and I'll figure yeah, you it know, out. I, 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 I think for most people who go in the military, uh, the better kind of defined you have your career aspirations in hand when you enter the, the more that you get out of the military while you're there. So I grew up, you know, in an affluent suburb of Detroit called Birmingham in Michigan. And everybody on my street, all these manicured lungs, everybody's dad either fought in World War II or in Korea, very patriotic apple pie America kind of place. Uh, I was born on the 4th of July. I think it was just a preordained thing. You know, I, you could go back and find pictures of me at 12 years old running around with a little, you know, camouflage, you know, outfit on and, and playing army in the fields with my friends. So it was something I always knew I wanted to do. I was in electronics early. This is kind of the era before home computers and internet really became the norm. Uh, I was a ham radio operator. I was building heat kits. I was into electronics. And I looked at the military as a means of bridging into a career in engineering, but getting some really great hands-on practical experience working in a, a very high-tech field. So I, I did air defense, radar, and missile system repair uh, and, and so went to school uh, in the military, 
um, spent a long time learning how to work on, on very complex electronics, um, you know, on classified secret uh, air defense radar systems. So it was it was a really great start. But that's exactly what I was seeking to do when I went in was give me the longest technical school I can find in the military to kind of launch a career, you know, into engineering. So um, went in with a specific goal in mind, accomplished that and then got out. I love that. And I love like the diversity of experiences that that really shaped you during that time. So after the military, you started working for R Squared, um, who eventually got acquired by GE Healthcare. Talk a little bit about this experience and what did you learn at your time when you were working at GE? Well, it was interesting because when I got out of the service, I applied for a job as a support engineer at R Squared. And I had none of the skills that they were looking for, you know, <laughs> academically. Right. But the hiring manager there was a, a former army captain. And, and one of my accolades while I was in the military was I, I was soldier of the year in 1984. And this army officer knew what that meant and knew what it took to achieve that. And he said, Adam, you know, I can train for skills. Um, but you, you know, this, I understand this, you know, it's a special, a special accomplishment. And, uh, I, I just need to have you on my team. So, you know, I, I went to R squared. It was kind of a running joke. Um, every time I went to work for a company, the company I was at bought the company I left. And this went on for a few different turns. The first company <laughs> I actually went to work for was called data scan. It, you know, didn't even put it on the bio because they were bought by R squared. I actually went to R squared and then I left R squared, went to GE and then GE bought R squared. So a lot of people thought I rode the wave as these acquisitions were happening. In reality, I was leading the wave. Each time a company got bought, I found myself uh, ahead of time in the company that wound up purchasing them. So early days as an, as an engineer, um, you know, building my craft, trying to perfect my, my trade. And I, I found that CAT scanners in hospitals were strikingly similar to air defense radar systems. So spinning antenna, one's taking a picture of the sky to find aircraft. The other one's taking a picture of the body, you know, to, to, to find, you know, different things inside anatomy and, you know, very, very similar. The only difference was the frequency at which they operated. So I was really good in the military. at What I did made me really good, really fast, and that led me into uh, engineering where I put mobile, I created, you know, freight trailers. We put CAT scanners inside them. That led me to superconducting magnets and MRI. Was doing really good as, a, as an engineer, but started to hit kind of a glass ceiling in my career. You know, I'm in my mid-20s, banging down better than 100 grand a year. And I'm kind of top, topped out, you know, for engineers. And it was at GE where I had the chance to kind of transition over, put away, you know, call it the proverbial slide rule and engineering skills, and all of a sudden, you know, get into the business world and now compete with kind of the Harvard MBAs of the world, different era. But this was Jack Welsh, you know, in the, in the GE heyday. Stock was splitting every two and a half years. It was kind of the Camelot era. Uh, for for General Electric, they were the world's most admired company. You know, the tech revolution hadn't really started, and you know, the tech companies hadn't taken over. And you know, it was just a, a really fun place to be at that time. You know, call it the 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 eighties, late eighties into the into the nineties, almost up to two thousand uh, two thousand one when Jack retired, and and so learned a lot. You know, and I, I credit the army with discipline, leadership, and teamwork, engineering with making me a meticulous planner, which are skills I use, you know, as a strategic planner today as a CEO, but it was really GE that then taught me how to run a business, you know, and, and, you know, GE Crotonville back in the day when I was going through their business school, uh, it was the world's most respected business school that was non-degreed. Mm -hmm. It was the GE leaders teaching the different modules, and, you know, a kind of a, a GE, when you hit the general manager ranks and you're a, a Crotonville grad, it's like then the world comes knocking on your door and wants to pick you off and, and hire you. And, uh, and that's kind of what then led me, you know, into the world of, of private equity. At the time, I was chasing title and money. And it was the first opportunity to be called president of a company. And I didn't know what private equity was, to be honest. And, and you know, back in that era, 20 years ago, you know, you had hundreds of firms, but not thousands. Today, there's over 6,000 
You had hundreds of billions in asset under management. Today, you've got more than $4 trillion dollars in assets under management. So I then also spent 20 years kind of really growing up with the private equity industry. And so it's it's been a fun ride, Been 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 a great career. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you wanna take your game to the next level or you wanna avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. So back up here for a second. So you're at GE, you decide to leave. Um, and that's when you got hooked up with the private equity firm. Were you seeking them out or how did that come about in, in getting your first gig as president and CEO? You know, I, I, uh, I didn't know what private equity was. And you know, I grew up in a depression era minded family. You know, my, my parents were born in the early 30s. Uh, and so their lives were kind of, kind of the impressions were made by the Great Depression, World War II, all the sacrifice, you know, my dad instilled in me, you know, I'm, I'm a young Irish Catholic, you know, there's a thousand kids in the neighborhood, you know, and, and it's, you know, title money, title money, that's how you define success. Well, I also learned family is important too, but, you know, along the way, I'm chasing title, chasing money, and I'm working, working my way up through the ranks. And, you know, the phone rings like it always used to ring. You know, now it's email. You know, it's junk email back then. I guess with robocalls, boy, you can't even answer the phone anymore. But back in that era, you know, just cold call, you know, hey, Adam, you know, I'm a recruiter. I'm looking, you know, to to fill a position in a private equity backed middle market type company. Uh, It happened to be a, a company that was a competitor of GE's. The business I was running for GE was very similar to this company. It was just smaller. Uh, and it was my first chance to become president. And I, I remember talking to my, my official GE mentorship team about this opportunity. And I'm like, what do you think? Is it better to be one of a thousand general managers at GE, hoping to be one of hundreds of you know, vice presidents or maybe someday you know, even run a, a division? Or is it better to leave, go to a smaller company and be a president? And I, and I remember a guy's name out there, uh, name's Mike Martin former Cleveland Browns football player. And I remember Mike telling me, Adam, once a president, always a president, you know, take the leap. GE's never going to see you as a president of a division until you leave and go become president of a division because of the way you came up through the ranks, you know, kind of the blue collar guy coming out of the service, working in, in field service and engineering. And, and, and so long putt to get there. And, and Mike was right. Once a president, always a president. Spent the last 20 years as president of organizations. But then shortly after I left, after Jack retired and passed the torch, a bunch of the GE divisional leaders who were running businesses vying to become the next Jack Welsh, when they didn't get it, they left. They went to other big Fortune 500 businesses to run it. And then my phone started to ring. You know, it's like, hey, hey Adam, I'm building a services business. Would you like to come here? You know, and, and so I was, was always amazed by that, but just how, how clear my, my mentorship team at GE kind of nailed, you know, nailed this decision for me because I struggled with it, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. And no, that makes sense. And it's interesting because, you know, you said 20 years ago, you weren't even that familiar with private equity and private equity is kind of a, a newer thing, right? You had like Blackstone and KKR trying to figure things out. And, um, but there, it's not like there was a ton of private equity firms back in the day. And now look how prolific it is. And, and in fact, so you've written two books now, The Private Equity Playbook and your newest book, The Exit Strategy Playbook. Let's first start with The Private Equity Playbook. What, what was the genesis behind this book? And maybe give the listeners a little bit, a little sneak preview of it. Yeah, you know, I, I've been blessed in life. And, and one of the many blessings is just been the success of, of that first book. So, so thank you to everybody out there around the world who... Uh, Help make that a bestseller for two years in a row. It held the number one spot, you know, in, in private equity, and it still plays with that today. And sales continue to increase on that book. Actually, have never gone down. Uh, it's it's been pretty remarkable. But here's here was my premise. I still believe to this day, if you were to put a thousand business people in a room and give them a basic quiz on private equity the vast majority of people would fail. 
And it, it, it seemed to be this gigantic black box that everybody's heard of, but nobody really knows what it is or how it works or, or you know, how it raises money, spends money, generates returns. And all they know are, are, are just some crib notes that they hear probably on the news. And probably it's a story about some ex, you know, ex famous private equity guy who made billions, ran for president and, you know, and it's usually got some kind of a negative connotation or spin to it. And as I've been building businesses for private equity, my experience as a CEO has been very different than the snippets I hear on the news. And so there was a disconnect. But in addition to that, with private equity capital now measured at greater than four and a half trillion dollars, more than seven trillion if you include private debt funds. Uh, and very quickly now, next year, first time, it's 50 plus percent of all merger and acquisition activity on the planet is expected to be with private equity on one side of the table or the other. And I'm thinking to myself, it is such a black box that's gotten so big and half of the world's M&A activity relates to private equity, either on one side of the table as a buyer, the other side as a seller, or chances are if the company's larger than $100 million in size, you probably got private equity on both sides. And there's this incessant need for them to put capital to work. So they're out there with a trillion and a half dollars in dry powder today looking for companies to buy. Entrepreneurs really don't know what private equity is, but yet they're getting phone calls from, from potential sponsors who want to buy their company. And you know they just have no connotation. So I decided that I could take 20 years worth of my experiences and learning mostly which are very positive. And I could write a book that was supposed to serve as a primer to educate kind of the general business community, both the entrepreneur side and the Fortune 500 side, as to what exactly private equity is, how it raises capital, how long funds exist, how they deploy capital, you know, what the types of private equity funds are, who the players are within the, the firms. And then if you wind up partnering, either you're hired as a Fortune 500 exec like I was to come run one, or, you know, you're an entrepreneur who sells to one, what's life going to be like after that deal closes? And how are you going to then function if you're an entrepreneur, you probably haven't had a boss you know, in a long time. Let's go decades. We're not talking VC here. I work in buyout funds, which buy mature companies that have real revenue and real history of earnings and track record of growth. And so you know, it's been decades for most of these folks where they, they haven't had a boss. Now, all of a sudden, they've got a partner and they've got a partner who could fire them. And it's a different dynamic. And I purposely kept the book short. Call, I like to call it, it's 20 years worth of CEO cliff notes on building businesses for private equity that you can read in about three and a half to four hours. So my target was cross-country airplane ride, take off from New York, LA, you know, pick a city, have a, have a quick drink, a bad meal, kick back. You got about three and a half hours left to go. And you say to yourself, am I going to do email or am I going to read this book? And if you read my book, by the time you land, you've got 20 years worth of CEO cliff notes, and you would ace that test on private equity. So what do you think is the biggest like misconception? Like we all know the, the different stigma that exists out there with private equity, where they say they come in, they destroy businesses, they cut jobs, they, you know, they're all about money and they don't care about, you know, the the other social good out there. But, you know, and I and I I disagree with a lot of those points. And I think there's data to combat a lot, a lot of that. But when you're doing the research and you're writing your book, were you trying to communicate a different message? And, and what do you think is like the big misconception out there specifically, not, not necessarily like the public, right? Who's like private equity bad, right? I'm talking more about you know, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and, and people that may be considering selling their business or you know, getting in bed with private equity. You know, so I, I, it's a great question and there's different directions I could go with it, but I'm going to stick with the entrepreneur for a second. I'm going to say, I think the most common mistake entrepreneurs make is to think of private equity as a one and done event. I built a company, I'm getting to my, I don't know, late 40s, 50s, and I'm starting to worry a little bit about retirement. And so I want to diversify my holdings, you know, or maybe I worked my whole career, I'm in my 60s, early 70s, and it's time to retire. 
I think a lot of entrepreneurs have a misconception of seeing private equity as being a, a singular event. I'm going to sell to a private equity firm. It's an exit. It's a path to an exit. And what I've learned over my career and kind of a, another tagline I like to use is why sell your company once when you can sell it twice or three times or my personal record selling the same company five times in 13 years and four months. And the, the, the reality is that you can diversify your assets by partnering with private equity earlier in your career, instead of building the business for your entire career and retiring and, and it's a singular event selling the business, sell earlier in, in your building of this empire, take chips off the table, diversify your assets and holdings, but then continue to build that same business with a private equity sponsor alongside uh, and by making a rollover investment, getting a second bite of the apple. And so if you'll indulge me, there's one story I love to tell, and it's, a, it's about a gentleman, good friend, uh, his family is now. It was the first company I bought while I was the CEO at CoolSys. And I, paid, I bought 21 companies here. It's a buy and build. We're putting them together. We're building a multi-billion dollar business. And I paid $16 million for his company. He took $12 million home. He rolled over $4 million. I then bought eight more companies. 27 months later, I sold the company for a four times multiple of invested capital. So his $4 million rollover investment became another $16 million. And if you go and talk to that individual and you say, geez, uh, you know, if you were thinking you know, about selling your business and they offered you $16 million and you were just kind of done and cashed out, would, would you have done that? You know, and, and the answer is, of course. You know, I was selling my business. I didn't want to roll over. I would have taken all my money and gone home. I'd have been happy with $16 million. You know, the, the team convinced me to make a rollover investment. You know, it was kind of a, it was really you had to because we required it. Yeah. And, and with that $4 million rollover, 27 months later, I got a second check for $16 million. Now I, I, I've lived rollover investing and continuing to build a business with a private equity sponsor. Can I have some more of that action, please? Let's roll over another you know, amount of money into this current hold period because I want another bite of that apple. Uh, and so I've now bought 21 companies, all the entrepreneurs that have joined, uh, you know, call it my, my current adventure, have all become rollover investors at CoolSys. And as CoolSys continues to grow, private equity sponsors are coming and going by nature of a private equity fund only lasting for 10 years, average hold period about five years. If you're going to build a company over 20 years, there's four exits. You know that are going to take place, and so an entrepreneur can cash out their chips four different times and diversify their holdings, use other people's money to grow the the business, and get subsequent paydays. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception on the entrepreneur side is that they consider private equity to be a one and done kind of thing. Sure. As you said, public stigma always out there. Hey, all private equity does is destroy companies. That's not true at all. The companies exactly. that I've built over 20 years, I, I've added thousands of jobs to the economy. Um, sure, there are some companies out there that have been broken up by private equity, probably a distressed asset fund that buys a company that's in trouble, you know, and then does have to do something, you know, they call it a swing for the fences, trying to restore it, which may include restructures, you know, and moving plants around or taking them out of the country. You know, so yeah, sure, some of that exists, but you've got 6,000 private equity firms. And the majority of the firms that I've worked with or consulted with or had the privilege to, 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 to be a, a partner to over the years, I, I would say they care very much about employees. They care very much about their limited partners. Boy, you want to talk about DEI and green and ESG. Uh, it's a it's a huge thing from a private equity perspective because it's important to their investors. It's important to their limited partners. You know, as a result of that, you know, huge focus on are we being good stewards to the environment with the companies that we're buying? You know, are we being inclusive? You know, are you know is DEI something that 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 we live and breathe? And, you know, when you take politics out of DEI as an example, you know, I go back to my military days. You know, there was one color in, in the U.S. Army. Everybody was green. Uh, and, you know, if you're on a battlefield, you get shot and uh, you're not looking up at the medic and wondering what party did he vote for in the last election or she. It's uh, thank God you're there, you know, and, uh, you know, fix me up, you know, and when you're getting 
lifted out in a helicopter, you know, are, are you looking at the pilot and wondering what his politics were? And the, you know, the answer is no. Want to stay away from politics in today's world. But the point is, I, I think that private equity firms do care about the companies that they're investing in. They do want to be good stewards to those companies. They do want to create jobs. They want to do all those things. Sure. No, and I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think there's a lot of value creation that occurs with private equity. That's not always highlighted. So let's talk about um, the exit strategy playbook. Why did you write the second book? And you know, give a, a brief synopsis of it. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. The second book came from the first book, but it's kind of like the Star Wars trilogy. It's written out of order. You know, you pro- I probably should have written the, the, the exit strategy playbook first and then done a deep dive on private equity. Instead, I did a deep dive on private equity. And that led me to the second book, um, which of which private equity is only a small piece of. But what literally happened, and it happened hundreds, if not more than a thousand times over was as people were reading the private equity playbook, a lot of entrepreneurs from all over the globe were reaching out to me and asking some questions. And I love it when, when readers do that. You can find me on LinkedIn um, and I, I actually answer people as long as you're not, not trying to sell me something. Um, it, you know, so I engage readers all the time. And what was great was people were coming to me and saying, geez, Adam, love this. You know, feel like I really you know, have the private equity thing dialed in now and I can, I can have a great conversation and I, I understand how it works. But I'm thinking about exiting my business or I, I, you know, I have this question about, you know, who should I sell to? And it was it was kind of the, the compilation of all of these different questions and, and outreach that I got from the first book that just kind of, you know what, the second book answers all those questions. And it, it's, it's broader in scope. And it really starts with I'm an entrepreneur who wants to sell a business. And the universe of buyers out there is huge. It's not just private equity. What about strategic you know, buyers? What about IPOs? What about SPACs? What about you know, owner operators you know, who are going to take over my dental practice or you know, what have you? And it's like, there are so many different types of directions that I could go. And so I start out in this book, first section is just all about who's the universe of buyers and why would you pick one versus another? Great example. Let's say I'm a 70-year-old entrepreneur and I really do want to retire. Well, private equity as a financial backer, not as an operator, is investing in you. They really want you to stay. And so you know that may or may not be your best fit if you're an entrepreneur seeking to ride off into the sunset. And sure. you know, if you go on the strategic side, well, there's two kinds of strategic buyers. There's those who turn the lights off or totally integrate, you know, fully absorb your company into the Borg and then close and turn off all the lights in all your offices because they're just buying your customers and your, your contracts or, or, or your, you know, your, your worker bees. Uh, and then they're shutting down headquarters. Well, if I'm trying to retire, strategic buyer who wants to turn the lights off may be a good fit. Uh, and so there's, you know, I go through the universe of who the potential buyers are. I talk about the reasons why one type might make sense versus another and, you know, kind of get into the broader universe. And then I get, I get people thinking about, well, what am I trying to accomplish in an exit? Then I get into a section where we just prepare the business for sale. One of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make is they wake up today and they say, I'm going to sell my company tomorrow. And they have not prepared that business for sale. And so I lay out kind of a three-year plan uh, of how you should be thinking about preparing a business for sale in the years leading up to an actual transaction. And then in the third section, we build an advisory team because you know what? Entrepreneurs are experts at building a business and they're experts at running their business. But a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of assuming because they're an expert in one thing, they're an expert in all things. And I, I see so many mistakes being made by entrepreneurs who, who kind of get ahead of their skis when it comes to exits. Exits are a specialty area of practice for many professionals. And so I help an entrepreneur build a team of advisors to help them with tax advice, with accounting help, investment banking advice, with very specific legal advice, legal specialists to help them sell a business get maximum value, but try to limit trailing liabilities, try to limit, you know, any, 
any loss of that value that they're creating in the sale event later on down the road because they had bad representation. And then finally, in the last section of the book, I literally walk them through step-by-step what kind of a lower middle market to middle market exit event looks like when it's an investment bank-led process. And so it really is, okay, you're interested in selling. Private equity is a potential buyer, but not necessarily the right buyer for all parties. So this book is now much broader and it's really designed to help entrepreneurs find the right path to exit. So how did, and that's great. And I love that. It sounds very interesting. I'm curious because oftentimes when I'm talking to CEOs or entrepreneurs, there's this giant disconnect in valuation, right? So like the saying, he or she who holds the highest value holds the asset, right? So if you think your business is worth a hundred million, but it's worth 20, guess what? You hold the asset, right? Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to that and, and somebody's thinking about exiting, you know, there's like this emotional connection to their baby, right? This business that they built over the last 20, 30 years. And they think in their mind, okay, like, um, you know, let's see, 50 million. Like, I think it's worth 50 million. And you're yeah. like, yeah, I mean, that would be like a, a 45 times multiple or whatever, right? So like, how do you how do you reconcile that? And like, how should, I know the private equity side and other strategic buyers are going to obviously look at like, okay, what are the future cash flows of the business? And like, you know, let's look at returns and IR and everything else. And there's a certain methodology to value the, the future cash flows, right? So there, there's that logical side from sophisticated buyers or people that are interested in, in the business, but then there's like the entrepreneur has like this emotional connection to valuation. How do you think you bridge that gap and how do like business owners start thinking about that? So they're not like caught off guard. Boy, I got to tell you, you know, the, the really great topic, you know, especially when we're, you know, in the midst still of a, of a global pandemic, I, I can think of some entrepreneurs who owned businesses before the pandemic hit. And they, to your point, had their own vision of what the valuation was. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic hit and the bottom fell out of their particular business or or industry. I I like to pick on, let's use movie theaters as an example. And I apologize if you own movie theaters because it's one of my favorite to pick on. But imagine what a movie theater was worth pre-pandemic versus today. And you know, people who love their business so much are destined to die with it. And, and then it'll be sold for fair market value, um, you know, or, or fire sale prices. But, you know, that is a problem. And so in, in the second book, I talk about building, you know, an advisory team. Uh, I talk about doing sell side quality of earnings. I talk about normalizing accounting. I talk about finding out what your real growth story is and has been. And, you know, let's talk about EBITDA. Let's talk about multiples and, and valuation ranges for different types of industries. And people who prepare the business for sale go through some of these exercises that, that I, I guide them through may not like a number, but they're going to know ahead of time what the buyer universe is going to be willing to pay for that business. And I think too often entrepreneurs, as I said earlier, just wake up and say, okay, now it's time to sell the business. And they don't know what the thing is worth. And they've never done a quality of earnings. They've never had an audited financial you know, on their, on their financials. They have no clue what the real earnings are, what EBITDA is, you know, or, or what the multiple is that the business trades for you know, in the broader industry and how they're going to position it to get maximum value, if not set the market at a higher price. And without any of that knowledge, they kick back and then wait for numbers to start coming in from from the buyer universe. And I would rather an entrepreneur spend a little money, do the work, build the advisory team and know exactly what the business is worth. And, And certainly then use a competitive process in order to maximize potential because multiples being paid have increased dramatically as a result of the influx of capital in private equity. And and so, yes, you can set the market, but you need to understand and know what that market is to begin with. And so what you were pointing out was sometimes people don't have a a good strength or touch with reality. They just come up with a number. And it's probably because they, they, they see too many software deals happening on TV where 
somebody's got a company that's never earned a dime and it sells for billions to some other tech company that you know is very highly valued. I don't want to say overvalued. Um, and, and so they're colored, you know, their their blue collar widget manufacturing business or their chain of restaurants or that movie theater or their services businesses, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, are not valued like a software company is. And so, you know, I, I believe that getting competent advice from professionals, I tell people selling a company is an area of expertise. Entrepreneurs know their business is stone cold. They spend 20 years building them. But guess how many exits they've done in that 20-year period? Goose egg, maybe one. I've bought over 100 companies ranging in size from a million to over a billion. You know, I've done that 100 times in my career. And so I try to take learnings from 100 transactions and put them together and help that entrepreneur who's going to go through their first exit, maybe their second, but it's going to be talked to them by a guy who's bought and sold hundred businesses, you know, over, over a 20 year period. And, and I think that, that like any other thing you do in life, you know, you get better with practice. You learn given time and exposure and experience, you know, a person who goes and plays golf the first time probably doesn't shoot 72, you know, but they work at it. They get experience, they learn, they practice and they become better, you know, at whatever task it is that they're doing. And the same holds true for entrepreneurs, but there's too much of a false sense of expertise that gets built because they've been successful building a company. And they think that that now makes them an expert in selling the business. So I'll help them get through that and they'll know what the business is worth. Uh, And then to your point, there still may not be a touch with reality, but at some point they'll at least know what the world values their business at. Sure. And if they want to exit, then they're going to have to come to grips with what that is. I mean, because there's economic feasibility in every deal. Sure. Like sure. you could have high valuations, but there there gets to a point where the deal just doesn't work economically. Like it doesn't make sense. So well, let, let's shift gears and talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is strategy in the integration of like finance, right? And that's like this whole podcast, strategic financial leadership. So I, I think there's, you know, a lot of bad strategy out there, you know, where companies they they come up with like marketing slogans and they think like mission, vision, values is where it stops, right? Not saying those things are bad, but that's not strategy. When you think about it, I think a lot of business owners, either they don't do strategy or they just, they're so focused on like operational improvements and and growing, you know, this by 10% or this by 20% instead of looking at the bigger picture. Because like, to your point, if you said, okay, look, I, I want to be out of this thing in five years, and you're like the key man in the business, key person, you know, all the uh, business development efforts come because of your reputation or because it's your baby and you have all these key customers. Well, guess what? When you go to exit in the future, there's going to be this like big key man discount, or you're going to have like golden handcuffs because they're not going to want to get rid of you. Right. So there's like things when it comes to strategy, like positioning your business, like hiring the right talent, putting the right processes, the right systems in, in, in order for you to like capitalize on that exit multiple. And to me, it's like, yeah, you could, you could focus on 10% improvements over here, or you could focus on three, five, 10 time multiple exits and, and, and upside there. And it's like, where should you be spending your time? So talk to me a little bit about that. And like, what, what's your take on like strategy? What do you think like business owners or entrepreneurs like miss in this whole process, when you think about like the big picture of long-term value creation? Yeah. So great topic. You know, we could spend hours on this one. One of, one of my favorite. So let's slap some entrepreneurs in the face with reality right now. <laughs> when private equity buys your business, they need you to grow at 30% per year sustained, you know, compound annual growth rate. If you do that, the company will double in size in 2.87 years. And it'll get to four times size in five in a five-year, typical five-year hold period. That's the magnitude of growth that needs to happen in order to get, call it the typical private equity 3x to 4x kind of multiple on invested capital. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how you do that now. Typically, when I come into a company, they're relatively slow growth, you know, we'll call it single digits. Because again, buyout funds buy mature companies. They this is not VC. This is not the world of VC where I've got one piece of software I sold to one person last year, and this year I sell it to two, and that's 100% growth. I'm talking companies that have been in business for decades in mature industries. 
typical annual kind of CAGR, you know, or compound annual growth rate is probably going to be in single digits and a good well run is, you know, probably 10%, let's call it. Here's the problem. A private equity fund exists for 10 years. Average hold period is five years. If you're growing at 10%, it takes seven years. You know, the law of 72, it takes at 10%, it takes seven years to double the size of the company. You're already longer than the hold period and doubling the size of the company doesn't get the PE guys to the to the 4X, you know, 3X, 4X, 5X or better type of return. So every time I come into a company, it's got this kind of sleepy growth trajectory and people may be happy with that. But what I have to do very quickly is bend the curve. Mm-hmm. And I have to get something that's been growing for the last decade at 6% and make it grow at 30% and sustain that 30% growth. For a mature company, that oftentimes means ramping up you know, organic growth to high single digits, low double digits, maybe 10, 10, 11%. Um, getting some margin improvement. So servicing your revenue a little bit smarter, a little bit better, you know, maybe adds another two, two, three, four points. And then there's some, you know, strategy, typically for me, it's buy and build, where I'm also going to seek to use acquisitions as a means to accelerate the growth trajectory uh, of a business. So, so how do you do that? You know, it, well, for me, I, as I talked about earlier, engineering background, meticulous planner, you know, there, there's a guy out there I got to give props to, um, his name's Sandy Yog. He's the CEO of a company called CEO.Works. Sandy is the former CHRO of uh, Unilever. He's a a former operating partner at Blackstone. And he's all about this concept called talent to value. And so what we look at is, okay, I've got a company. It's it's at this sleepy place. I want to get it to grow at 30%. How am I going to do that? You know, what are the five or six initiatives that we're going to have to really focus on and drive to make that happen? And then in an organization with 3000 people or whatever the size is, who's the, you know, the 20 to 25 people that are actually going to make that happen. And so we, you know, Sandy's on my board. I've worked with him in the past, you know, and, and we look at the business and we say, what are we going to do differently during this whole period to really amp up growth? Who are the people that are going to do it? And what are the specific skill sets that we're going to need in these people to be successful? And how are we going to make good hires? Because we don't have a lot of time. And you know what? I, I, I got to tell you, in, in my last iteration of doing this, we identified roughly 23 key individuals who were going to add billions of dollars in shareholder value. And guess what? nine of the jobs that we identified did not exist in the company. And on that day, they were going to be new positions, new hires, people attacking new things that did not exist during my last hold period. When I got a four times multiple of invested capital for that shareholder, now I got to do it again. And so really, you know, a lot of effort up front in figuring out what those you know, initiatives are going to be. So I'll give you an example of one. Uh, I'm in a highly fragmented industry. I've bought 21 companies, buy in, build. Acquisitions will be a part of our growth. It's the largest lion's share of shareholder value creation that, that we will accomplish over, call it a five-year hold period. And so when I first came to the company in 2016, there was no deal team in-house and there was no one to do acquisitions. You know, today... I'm in my second hold period with a different group of private equity guys now, but I now have eight professionals who do nothing but mergers and acquisition who are embedded within the company. And this is their full-time job. And that whole department just didn't exist when we started. I had a sales team that had you know, 35, 40 people, but they were all farmers. We had no hunters. They were all account managing existing business. I had nobody out there knocking on doors, looking for new customer opportunities. So we blew up the sales team. We reconstituted the sales team. And some of those key jobs were in the sales you know, area. Margin improvement. Geez, you know, who, who's gonna, whose full-time job is it going to be to focus on looking at all of our strategic processes that we do thousands of times every day? And it's going to look for the bottlenecks and try to use either technology or some streamlined approach to allow us to flow all that information and all those individual 
different things that we're doing faster down the river so that as we're scaling and building, we can build with some economies of scale, which leads me then into technology. Geez, if you're going to buy 20 companies, what platform are you going to put these things on? Because you can't have 21 different companies running on 21 different systems. You need one source of truth, one data lake. You need to be able to bolt on you know, some, some business intelligence, machine learning type, you know, applications to that. So I, I would tell you that, you know, it, it's almost an exciting time. You're an entrepreneur, you're successful, you grow your business, you sell it, and it's not game over. It's now you just joined the big leagues and it's time to amp up your activity mm-hmm. kind of to a magnitude of about four times. And this is the fun part. This is where you get to really strategize with some very smart people. You got the resources to bring in some of the world's best consulting groups who've done this dozens of times with other people. And it's like, okay, let's re-engineer the next five years of this company and game on, let's go execute. So that's, you know, I, I think it's the probably the single most important thing that happens you know, at the beginning of a whole period. But I would also encourage entrepreneurs, as I do in my book, what's your growth story? You need to do this kind of stuff before you sell the company because you need to pick up that plan, show it to that next potential owner and say, here is the map to the promised land. And with your capital and your help, this is how we're going to amp growth up to an entirely different level. So in my world, if you're not doing that kind of level of strategic planning, then very low probability of success in the whole period. Yeah, no, and I and I absolutely agree. And I, I love how you you tied in like the idea of value creation and strategy into into two. And especially how you talked about like these value creators um, within the organization. You know, so I, I wrote about that in my second book, Outsizing, and I, I call them value maximizers, same, same kind of concept. But it's, yeah. it's like, how do you identify these people? How do you invest in them and upskill them and build these like skills, capabilities, and more importantly, the mindset, right? Because some of the, I, I think oftentimes, this is kind of a side note, you know, I, I was talking to a company just a, you know, a few weeks ago about this and, and we're talking about strategy. And I said, look, you know, like the mindset of your employees, the stories that exist within your company will always beat your strategy out. So if, if you're saying, look, we don't have time to focus on this, guess what? You don't. Your strategy will never work. You'll never be able to execute. If you say, oh, this is just the way we've always done it. You know, our margin's always been 30% and we know customers won't pay more or we know we can't be more efficient. Guess what? That's what you're going to get. So it's, yeah. you know, as you're identifying these people and you're upskilling them and you're like reshaping the mindset, sometimes mindsets don't reshape and you got to bring new talent in or you got to invent new positions or, you know, reshuffle the deck. But, you know, I, I love that concept of, you know, identifying those people along with your strategy, because that's how execution and true value creation exists and occurs. And for, for me as a CEO, I have 3,000 employees. I care about them all. I can't spend every day with all 3,000 of them. So sure. you know, we do things like uh, you know try to do our best to communicate. We have roundtables. I can get 1,000 employees to participate in a Zoom roundtable, which is great. It's, it's fabulous. But I can't spend all my time with every employee every day at the time. So where am I going to spend my time? Well, I, I'm going to spend it with the 23 people you know, who are going to make that value creation happen, they're going to get a lot of extra attention, a lot more focus on KPIs, a lot more focus on, you know, is this working, you know, and am I on track for that value creation? And then, you know, the rest of the organization, the empire, you know, very good leadership team that has to continue to, to find ways to constantly be improving. As you said, you know, you just, you did this last year. Well, this year wages went up, yep. cost of benefits went up. That means you got to do more than what you were doing or else your earnings are going down. And so there's a constant need to be improving, call it the base business. And, and so whole different set of people in you know, group whose focus is maintain the battleship while we're figuring out where we're going to sail and you know, who's going to jump on board next and, and what we're going to do. And it's uh, to me, these are the, these are the fun, uh, that's where the fun comes in, you know, in, in business is, is really, it's, it's in the strategy, seeing the strategy play out. Uh, and then, you know, of course, being flexible enough to make adjustments because nobody, when they're planning, 
you know, decides that there's going to be a global pandemic and sure. everyone's going to be home and business is going to be shut down and we're going to be wearing masks for two years and arguing about vaccinations. I mean, no, nobody sees this kind of stuff coming. I now as a CEO in 20 years have lived through what I'm going to call two really big earth changing, shattering events. One, of course, the global pandemic. The second, you go back to 2008, 2009 and the Great Recession. Those people who are old enough to have been in business in senior positions back then, that was a huge disruptor to, uh, to, to the world as we knew it you know, back in that time. So change does happen you know, and earth shattering changing events happen on a dime without anybody really knowing that they're coming. So you always have to be adaptable to change. And so the way I like to think of it is I always know where I'm sailing. But if there's storm clouds out there, I might need to deviate, you know, but eventually I'm going to get back on course because I know what on course is and I know where I'm trying to get. I can navigate shift and people who don't do that, I call it riding the wave. They may have a good run because the economy's doing good. Their company's doing good. And so they're just like up on top waving. Hey, how are you? And, mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they're riding that wave. And then when something bad happens, boy, they ride it right down into the ground. And, and uh, you know, a company that is thinking, that's planning, that's on top of this, they make that ride on top of the wave go higher and they make the crash lower and they recover faster. And so over time, they create a distance in, in how their performance is reflected versus those of their peers that aren't doing this actively. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So, I mean, obviously you have a, a lot of experience and a, a lot of background um, in this space. So let's talk about buying and selling a business. I mean, it's multifaceted, it's complicated, it's very nuanced. It takes a ton of work. Let, let's talk about uh, what mistakes have you made in the past and what have you learned from, from those mistakes? So, you know, when you're selling a, a company, so two big lessons. One, I'm going to say, I'm going to start off with this transparency. So most entrepreneurs that I deal with are very secretive about what they're doing. They don't want their employees to know, going to sell a business, and they treat it like it's a top secret event. That results in very few people participating, which means a deal is going to take longer. The buyer universe has less exposure to the business itself and to the key leaders below that entrepreneur. You talk about that key man discount. Mm -hmm. And... And as a result of that, they're probably leaving a lot of money on the table. So let me give you an example uh, in my world. So I have 3,000 employees. Every employee knows we're owned by private equity. They know I'm going to bring in different institutional shareholders at different times. So I'm going to say hello to one new group, use their money for a while, say goodbye to that group, bring in another. And eventually our destination is public market, probably $6 billion company down the road. That's where we're headed. But there's going to be guys coming in and out. All 3,000 employees know that. I put up a chart every year that shows here's what revenue is, here's what EBITDA is, and here's the red line and when we get here, this is when I'm kicking this group of shareholders out and I'm bringing in the next. So I'm transparent. Look, not every employee knows what EBITDA is or what it means. I try my best to explain. The difference, though, is I'm telling them, I'm talking, and you know they can choose to tune in or not tune in, but I'm very transparent. And the reason I am transparent is when it's time for me to sell my business, I want the buyer universe to come into my world. I want them to come to my headquarters. I want them to walk around the halls and I want them to see the culture that we've built and the type of organization that we have because it adds a lot of value. So to take that concept a little further, I like to talk about the Apple box. Um, I, I've been lecturing at universities for about 15 years. You know, and I always ask a spot poll question. I get in a room, how many people were born in this country? Please raise your hand. Invariably, about half the class in today's modern university is born here and half are born elsewhere. And they're all together in this educational experience. And so I've got a global representation. Then I ask real quick, how many people in this room own an Apple product, have an Apple iPhone, an iPad, you know, something that's Apple. And invariably, 90% of the hands go up in the air. And then I ask another spot poll, you know, and I've been doing this for 15 years. How many people that have an Apple product somewhere in your house still have the box that it came in? 90% of the hands stay up in the air. 
the world has some kind of an affinity for Apple packaging. The only, you know, and then to get a laugh, I say, okay, how many people out there have a Dell computer box in their closet? And, <laughs> right. and everybody right. laughs because nobody has a Dell computer box. Not knocking Dell, use them as a corporate partner. Great, great people, great hardware. But Apple has mastered the art of packaging. And then I bring that home to entrepreneurs when I'm lecturing about entrepreneurial leadership and I talk about the business. So you have a business. If you're transparent, if employees know what's going on, when it's time to sell that company, you have to create an Apple box. And so my headquarters are always modern. They're always you know, insightful. You know what we believe. You know what we do. You know who we do it for. And you can read our culture just by getting off the elevator and walking around on our floor. And you're like, wow. I was not expecting this from a laundry company or mm -hmm. wow, I wasn't expecting this from a refrigeration company. And the reason I do that is to appeal to human nature because when the buyers come and they look deep, they go down to their spreadsheets, what's the earnings, what's the multiple the industry trades for and what am I gonna have to pay to buy this business? And when I'm doing it in secret in a hotel room, because I don't want anybody to know and they can't immerse in my culture or talk to my people or see my facilities, and see what I've built, then that's where it stops. When they come to my Apple box, because I'm transparent, they look around, they see all this coolness, they then go back down to the same spreadsheet, but now it's got a new column. What's the earnings of the company? What's the multiple the industry trades at? What's the premium I'm gonna have to pay to own this cool asset and take it off the table before 10 of my competitors get in here and get a look at this and they buy it out from under me? Remember, they got $1.5 trillion that they have to put to work today. Can't return it. You know, if you don't call it and don't use it, your LPs aren't going to commit more to you in the future fund. You got to put the money to work. And so I build this Apple box and it's important. It's the single largest investment I can make. You know, my research shows that by having a cool headquarters, you probably add around one turn of value in an exit process. Could be as high as two, depends on the size of the company. But if I'm selling a company with 100 million of EBITDA and I can get half a turn to a turn, it's 50 million to 100 million in shareholder value to be transparent and to, to be immersive in the sale process. And you know, maybe I spent two million bucks building out my my environment, my headquarters to just to display all of this. And what's the return? Well, I sold the company for a four times multiple of invested capital. But if I invest two million and get an extra fifty to hundred, you know, you're you're talking about a twenty five to fifty times multiple of invested capital sure. just for being transparent, just for building an Apple box. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs leave a lot of money on the table because they're living their life in secret. They're not transparent with their employees and they, uh, they're leaving money on the table by, by not taking advantage of what I call their own home field advantage. No, I love that. And I love that analogy of the, of the Apple box. I think that's so true. So let me, let me ask you one more thing, one more question before we wrap up. So what is one piece of inspiring advice that you received that shifted your life? Boy, that's a, that's a good question. We all face crossroads in our careers. You know, I can go back to my life. I always knew I was going in the service, so I can't say college right away or military was, was much of a crossroad. But like a crossroad when I was in the service was stay in, get out. And when I got out and I had an engineering career, I was a really, really good engineer, top of my game. And, you know, then it's stay an engineer or go join the ranks of the business leader, business manager. And then when I was at GE and it was, you know, geez, do I stay at GE in the comfort of the Fortune 500 world or do I take a chance and go out and go be president, you know, of a, of a very much smaller company? And so all of us have crossroads in our lives. And I, I think one of the, one of the, probably the, the biggest mistakes I think I was certainly was guilty of it earlier in my, my life, you know, in my twenties and my thirties is not really understanding what my career was going to be or where it was going to take me or, or what my ultimate goals and objectives were going to be. So I, I've mentored over a thousand uh, executive MBA candidates and fully employed uh, MBA candidates over, over the course of my career. Oftentimes they, they come to me and they say, Adam, I have a job opportunity uh, I, I, and I can't figure out, should I take it or not take it? 
And I'm thinking to myself, you know, oftentimes, you know, I just met these people or just met this person and I don't know them well enough to be able to answer that question for them. So how am I going to give them the help that they need? And I have them do two exercises. One is write down a date on a top of a piece of paper that's 10 years from today. Describe your life. Where do you live? Are you married? You know, what's your family unit look like? You drive a car. What's that look like? You know, just describe your life in great detail. And then when they do this, they're not goal setting. What they're doing is they're defining success. And then I tell them, you know, second exercise, write your own obituary, you know, and, and talk about what did you accomplish in life? How did you give back to society? Who came to your funeral? You know, what did you do? And once you get through with the jokes of, oh, I was 95 years old and I died in bed with, you know, a thousand 20 year olds or, you know, or whatever, right. you know, that their, their joke was, you know, then they start to think about it from a different point. And with two points now, I can chart a course. And, and so I get them to, to really talk, you know, our careers only last 40 years, really. Mm-hmm. And we spend about 10, 15 of them trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. Sure. And, and as a result of that, we waste a lot of time. And so the earlier we can answer some basic questions about what is it we're really trying to accomplish in life? What is it we're really wanting to, 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 to do? Then we'll spend less time getting there and more time being there and enjoying, call it the fruits of our, of our labor. And I think too often people at all levels of life, you know, at all educational backgrounds of life, you know, at all different age groups, tend to not really have a clear understanding of what they're trying to accomplish or where they're headed with their careers, with their lives. You know, and I, I think when they start to be a little bit more introspective about how do I answer these questions, the more I can paint that picture, even if it changes in a few years, it's fine. Sure. It becomes so easy to make these career decisions. Geez, Adam, should I stay in the military or should I get out? Well, what was I chasing? Money and title. You know, and you know what? I could retire early. So my two goals when I left home, just so everybody knows, I wanted to find financial security for a family that did not yet exist. And I wanted to retire early. Figured, why, why the hell do I want to work till I'm dead? You know, let's make some money and have some fun. And those were my two goals and objectives. Now apply all these career points. Okay, military, stay in, get out. Well, I could retire early. That's one. But people who retire out of the military probably aren't wealthy. Yeah, you know, sure. God bless them. Thank you for your service. You know, and, and I'm a vet too, but I always knew I was going to get out. So chasing money, easy, easy answer. Time to leave. Got what I needed. Discipline, teamwork, leadership, skills, time to go. Okay. Now I'm an engineer. I'm, I'm hitting the glass ceiling on earnings. Okay. So topped out. Should I take the risk and go to business? Well, easy given my two goals and objectives, because my career path now goes all the way to the corner office. You know, there's no impediment to me, you know, achieving the financial goals and objectives. Stay at GE, leave GE. Well, Fortune 500 world, what's the percent of people that make a million dollars a year working in the Fortune 500 world? It's really small. What's the percentage of of CEOs or presidents that make a million dollars a year working in middle market private equity backed companies? It's really high. You know, go be a president in middle market private equity, stay in the Fortune 500 world as a general manager and have a business card. Everybody knows what the name is. And, you know, sure. ooh, I'm impressed. Again, very easy decision once you know what my goals and objectives were. So I, I would say my biggest mistakes that I've made, you know, I went way off topic because this had nothing to do with buying companies, <laughs> but it really just has to do with life. Yeah. You know, and so I, I would say, you know, having very clear understanding will help guide you in life. And similarly in, in business, having very clear goals and objectives for what you're trying to accomplish with your, with your company will also lead you towards making good decisions. So on MA, since you did bring it up, I'll just say real quick, I think people spend way too little time deciding what the optimal perfect acquisition is rather than just going out and buying stuff. Because, let me tell you, one bad acquisition takes so much energy and strength out of a leadership team and provides and creates so much distraction Mm -hmm. that it can kill a business in no time. You need to put time up front on acquisitions, defining what is a perfect acquisition look like for me? What am I trying to accomplish? And I have a bunch of things I call filters, you know, and and those filters example might be EBITDA margin must be greater than 10%. I don't want a fixer upper. 
you know, and, and so I want something that's going to be accretive to my own EBITDA margin. I'm only going to buy businesses that are performing at a higher EBITDA margin than my own, because I'm not going to do something that's dilutive to my own earnings. That's one. Number two, I want a best in class company. I don't want a fixer upper that I can get cheap. I rather pay fair market price for a good company with a good entrepreneur that's going to fit within my culture Mm -hmm. rather than, I can't tell you how many businesses I've passed on because I felt that the cowboy entrepreneur just was not going to be a fit in my stable of 21 other entrepreneurs, you know, who are all working hand in, in, in hand at CoolSys to build a big and better empire. You know, I don't need the ego, check your ego at the door, you know, don't need that. You know, for me, construction versus service. I want more service, less construction. Wall Street doesn't like construction. It's very cyclical in recessions and planned pandemics and things like that. Um, and so more services, less construction. Okay to have some construction, but you know, focused on businesses that are more than than half, you know, services. And if I can find one that's 80, 90%, you know, services and, and 10 to 20% construction, even better. You know, so I have all these little filters. You know, we put a lot of science into geography. Um, so who are all the brands I service today? Where are the stores or facilities that they have that are in markets I'm not serving today? Lay them all out on a map. Look at this, what I call, you know, kind of an MSA of opportunity. If I buy a company in that MSA, I have the highest probability of growing it very quickly organically after I buy it because I've got all these logos I can bring with me into sure. my new territory. So we put a lot of science into M&A up front. And I, I can honestly say 21 acquisitions, no problems. doesn't yeah. mean everything's perfect. But in baseball, the best baseball player ever on the planet, batting average-wise, Ty Cobb batted in the 400s. Four out of 10 times he was on base, six out of 10 times he struck out you know, or sure. made an out. In yeah. business with acquisitions, you got to bat 900 or better. If you're not, you're not going to last long, you know, and, and your goal is to be as close to batting a thousand as you can, because one bad acquisition will cause you a lot of grief. So spend time up front and only buy companies that, that are going to help you don't buy for the sake of buying. I like that. Great advice. And you know, the, the opposite is true when you're, if you're buying or if you're operating a business, make sure you're building a business that, you know, is sellable and attractive to the market. So two great books, two great resources, the private equity playbook, the exit strategy playbook. Um, if you haven't checked those out already, I highly recommend them. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate your insights. Congratulations on your journey so far and all the value that you're um, adding out there in the marketplace and in the businesses that you're running. So I wish you the very best of luck. And once again, thanks for being on the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you to your listeners for staying with us this long. Appreciate you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best. Thank you.